Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians could not be more relevant for us today, dealing as they do with modern topics like patience and trials, sexual morality, and watching for the second coming of Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, your podcast for all things Come Follow Me. Today's lesson, New Testament number 41, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. As always, should you care to email the program, send me a message at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Today's question comes from a listener in Salt Lake. I've heard that the authorship of some of Paul's epistles is in question. How do you deal with that when treating them as scripture? I'm glad you asked. We'll be dealing a lot with questions of authorship today, and uh, not only in Paul's epistles specifically, but about authorship of the New Testament and even uh, the Old Testament in general. And how do we how do we deal with when questions come up, and when there simply is no satisfying answer? We'll talk about all of that and many other things. And thank you to everyone who has left a rating or a review. Your five-star reviews on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud help other listeners to find us and are much appreciated. So today is October 22nd, and we've been studying the New Testament all year, and I'm happy to report we finally made it to the beginning. (laughs) And I say that because 1 Thessalonians is very likely the first thing written that we have in our modern New Testament. Uh, Paul's out of Paul's epistles, it's generally considered to be the first. Paul is considered to be the first of the epistolary prophet or epistolary apostles to write, and the epistles are generally considered to come before the Gospels in uh, it, as far as when they were written. Obviously, the chronology of the stories told is earlier in the Gospels, which is why they're put first in the New Testament. So, uh, the the story of Paul in the in Thessalonica, as I've learned it's pronounced, is found in Acts chapter 17, and we'll briefly go over it, and uh, then we'll talk about the doctrine that he presents in his letters. And the story is that Paul, this is one of the cities where he left immediately after he left Philippi, and if you recall, he was treated very poorly in Philippi. And Paul spent a short time in Thessalonica teaching the Jews in their synagogues. He actually, it says in, uh, so we're reading now from Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul, as his manner was, this is verse 2, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So he he went into the uh, into the synagogue and he's teaching the Jews. And we can presume that he's also teaching anyone who wasn't a Jew, as he often did. And there were a lot of believers, but the but there were half of the Jews, or you know, we don't know the proportion, but some portion believed him and followed him, and the other portion were jealous that here's some guy taking away our followers. So uh, in verse three, open opening and alleging, Paul Paul is doing, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Now uh, I want to I want to focus on one particular phrase in that verse. Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. If you remember, we did a special episode 
called The Things Concerning Himself, about how Jesus appeared in the book of Luke, chapter 24. Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and talked to them. And one of the things that he said was, uh, O fools and slow of heart to believe, ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And and, uh, to I can't remember the exact quote, I don't have it in front of me, and to enter into his glory. In other words, And then beginning, it says, the scripture reports, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And this this was the same language that Jesus used talking to these disciples when he said, ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And here's Paul teaching, Christ must, uh, he's opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. In other words, there was, it was known that he would suffer or that it was obvious from the Hebrew scriptures, like Paul is, he has a Jewish audience here, so he's saying, when he says Christ must needs have suffered, it was incumbent upon the Messiah to to suffer and die rather than just be a conquering Messiah. In other words, the kind of Messiah that we could hope for was exactly the kind of Messiah that Jesus was, not a military Messiah the way you've all been thinking about. And obviously Paul's teaching was persuasive because he made a lot of converts. But the point that I'm making right now is that Paul, we have reason to believe from the way this verse is worded, that Paul got this teaching indirectly from Jesus himself. Because later on in Luke 24, as we as we discussed, Jesus appears in front of all of the 12, or 11 of the 12 apostles, I'm sorry, 10 of the 11 apostles, because Judas was dead, and He tells them, again, the same scriptures. He shares with them the same lesson that he shared with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he tells them, obviously, I am the Messiah, and it was always my plan to have my life go exactly the way that it did. It was always my plan to be a victim of the cruelty of the Jews and of the Romans, because that was the kind of Messiah that I always planned to be. And, uh, and we, we discussed what some of those verses might have been in, in a very long special episode. So uh, if you're interested to know what my idea of what some of those scriptures were, uh, you can go back and find that. But uh, so the point is, Peter was there present. James and John were there present. Several other people that Paul has mentioned knowing personally were there present. And so here's Paul teaching similar teachings to the Thessalonians and... Um, and they have echoes of the exact same way that Jesus described his, le- or that Luke described Jesus's message. And so it's very probable that Paul got this teaching from one of the disciples who heard it directly from Jesus. That's kind of exciting because it's Jesus teaching that the way that you've interpreted the Old Testament, you Jews, the, the kind of Messiah that you've imagined for yourselves is not actually what the prophets talked about. And there's an aspect of the Messiah that you've missed. And here it is. The Messiah, or Christ, must needs have suffered and to enter into his glory. And so Paul is expounding to them these teachings that came originally from Jesus. And we also know that Paul heard directly from Jesus on uh, at least three occasions and was taught of the Savior about what his mission might be. And so he may have uh, had some of these teachings expounded in greater detail to him directly from God. So in any case, uh, as I said, that these teachings were effective. So going on to verse 4, Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, 
Um, in, in certain places in Macedonia, women were actually the leaders of their households. And so they would have made the decision about whether their family converted or not. And they would have been influential uh, among the upper crust of society as well. So making the con- converts of these chief women, as they're called in verse 4, uh, would have been a great uh, tool for Paul and Silas. So uh, obviously Paul made uh, converts among the Jews and among the Greeks. And then in verse 5, we're still in Acts chapter 17. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, which is a friend of Paul and Silas, we can presume, this is the first we've heard of them, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so Paul and Silas have to leave the city. Now I want to talk about some parallels here. So, First thing that the rulers of the Jews, the the jealous rulers of the Jews, they take unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Now, you recall at the trial of Jesus in front of Pilate, there's a mob there and Pilate says, look, I want to release unto you one of these two people. One of them is Barabbas and one of them is Jesus. And the mob says, release Barabbas, release Barabbas. Uh, We don't care about Jesus. Uh, And Pilate says, look, he's an innocent man. And they said, And the mob said, according to the book of Mark, at least, they said, upon our heads be it, right? The sin of, if he's innocent, then upon our heads be the sin. And so then uh, Jesus is, because of this mob, is condemned to death. Well, um, the mob, we can presume, was raised this was early, remember this trial in front of the Pilate's palace was early in the morning. And we can presume that the reason a mob that was hostile to Jesus uh, was present so early in the morning in front of Pilate's palace was because the rulers of the Jews had assembled this mob. So in order to persecute a man who had claimed kingship over the Jews and the rulers of the Jews didn't like it, they raised a mob. And here they are in Thessalonica doing the exact same thing for the exact same reason, because two men in their city are proclaiming that Jesus is king. Now, here's another parallel, very interesting one. And when that doesn't work, they take their mob and they go to the rulers of the city. So here are leaders of the Jews going to the Roman, their Roman overlords and pretending that they really care about Caesar not being held in proper respect, right? Here they are in verse 7. These do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. So in the trial, in his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus was condemned to die for blasphemy. If you remember, it was when he called himself the son of man that Caiaphas tore his clothes and said, do we need to hear anything further? And that was the end of the trial. They had all heard the blasphemy as they, as they supposed it out of Jesus' own mouth. And then they ended the trial right there and sent him to 
Pilate, but Pilate didn't care if Jesus blasphemed according to Jewish law. He didn't care if he identified himself with some obscure figure in the book of Daniel. Pilate didn't even know about that. So they had to come up with another pretext, and the pretext that they gave was he made himself a king of the Jews instead of Caesar. So they accused Jesus of sedition, and the, and the penalty for, remember, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. The penalty for sedition was crucifixion, and that was the penalty that Jesus suffered. So that was the actual crime for which he was condemned to die. And here are the leaders of the Jews in Thessalonica accusing Paul and Silas of the exact same crime of which they accused Jesus in the exact same way for the exact same reason. And by extension, they're accusing also all of the believers, all of their fellow former Jews, or, you know, at this time there wasn't this controversy between whether you're a Christian or a Jew. You could be a Christian or a Jew, and you could be a member of a Christian community or a Christ community. And uh, there was no conflict in, in the minds of those who believed in Christ. There was no conflict between that and their Jewish identity. And so for the same reason, they would have persecuted the, the believers among them in their, within their own congregation. And I wanted to make that point at the beginning because uh, I believe that Christ had to have had a... a soft spot in his heart for the Thessalonians because they are, and for Paul and Silas as the as their converting brethren, because they all suffered similar persecutions to those that led to his death. They're all, as, as he said, if, if you should receive punishment, persecutions, if, if they should mistreat you horribly for my name, then blessed are ye. And they're all receiving these persecutions for the, ex- and it's not just for the name of Christ. It's in the exact same way. It's by the same people. It's towards the same people. It's it's from the Jews to the leaders of the Romans, and it's for the same reason. Such a fascinating parallel. Um, and that's, uh, in my, at least what on the top of my head, it's unique in the scriptures that the Thessalonians are suffering in this way. And that's a major theme in Paul's epistle. So Paul quickly, he, he doesn't stay long in Thessaloniki. He has to go to Athens and, or he immediately goes to Berea, but then uh, before too much time, finds himself in Athens. In fact, that's uh, within one chapter of Acts. He's, he's in Athens teaching there. And uh, legend has it that these letters to the Thessalonians were written from Athens. And so uh, very quickly, Paul is writing back to, uh, back to his former converts, uh, something that when I was on a mission, we, we couldn't do. We couldn't write within the... Uh, the boundaries of our mission, but I guess things were different then. Ha ha. Anyway, so Paul is writing uh, to the Thessalonians, and he has heard that they're being that they're still being persecuted. So things are difficult for the Thessalonians, right? Because the leaders of the Jews are still going to the Romans and saying, "Okay, well, Paul and Silas have gotten themselves out of the city, but we still have all these people here who believe the things that they taught, and they're teaching." that Jesus is king rather than Caesar. In order to rid themselves of these pretenders, and in order to punish the upstarts, and uh, in order to confront this challenge that has been made to their own beliefs, they would rather turn over uh, fellow believers, fellow Jews, to the Roman authorities rather than either listen or just let them be who they were and let them believe as they wanted to. Very interesting that uh, the Jews considered the Romans to be so oppressive, and yet 
there are certain things that would make them collude with Rome to punish fellow believers. That's how offensive the belief in Jesus was to some of the Jews. So that is the those are the persecutions that Paul is addressing as he writes his letter. And the Thessalonians are suffering. They're genuinely suffering. But here's the interesting thing. They're bearing it well. He hears how well they're doing. And so the first letter to the Thessalonians has, um, I guess you might say it's divided up because, well, let me put it another way. There are a series throughout these letters, there are a series of apostolic blessings, and you, and you still have evidence of this happening today. Um, I, I noticed a couple of times during conference, whenever you hear an apostle or a member of the First Presidency, st- instead of addressing the, the people listening, he starts to address either Jesus Christ or Heavenly Father. Then you can know that that apostle, that speech has now become an apostolic blessing, and he's making it, he's making it with the power of the priesthood. So he, if he's praying to God for the people that are listening, that's you being party to a blessing, to a prayer from an apostle to God on your behalf. Uh, it's a very special and very sacred thing. And occasionally they'll, they'll say it explicitly. Occasionally they'll say, I leave on you my apostolic blessing. And um, in Paul's case, he doesn't say it uh, particularly that explicitly, but he, he several times ceases addressing the Thessalonians and says, God, may God provide these blessings upon you. And so the way that I divide the, these uh, epistles is by, I, I see them as being punctuated by these apostolic blessings that occur throughout. So the first sort of segment is 1 Thessalonians uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And basically he's saying, uh, it's worthwhile. I understand your suffering and it's worthwhile to, to continue in faith. And Paul, so Paul begins, First uh, Thessalonians chapter one. Paul begins by talk by talking to them about their history of idolatry, and obviously now he's addressing particularly those those converts that came from the Greek tradition. And he's saying, "You thought it was worthwhile when I when when Silas and I came unto you. You thought it was worthwhile to turn away from idolatry to accept the living God, and we showed you." We, we loved you. We gave you this example. Um, this, this is now, you know, ch- chapter one and two, they're pretty short, but now we're, we're blending into chapter two. We gave you the example of people who loved you like our family. Uh, you were almost like children to us. And we gave you our, our, our very souls, he says um, in one translation, or our very selves in another translation. So Paul is saying, we shared with you what was, what was deepest in us, and we became one of you. We loved you like our own. And in so doing, we were giving you that, that kind of example of Christian leadership that Jesus taught about, which is that who would, as we all know, whoso would be greatest among you should be your servant. And Paul is saying, I, we, we taught you the example of humble service, right? We were serving you and we were humble among you. And that is the model for leadership in a Christian community. Uh, okay, so going into chapter 2, a little bit later in chapter 2, not only uh, the leaders, but all the members are following the example of Jesus. Because in Judea, 
right now, this is Paul talking, in Judea right now, the Christ communities there are suffering the same kinds of persecution that you're suffering. And so you're finding yourself in the middle, you, the Thessalonians, are finding yourself in the middle of the same story that they are. And all of us together are reenacting the story of Jesus in the way that I've, I've described earlier. I spent a little time on that. Uh, we're all reenacting the story of Jesus because he was mistreated by the Jews. They were threatened by him in the same way that they're threatened by us. And there's honor in that. There is distinction and there, is, there are blessings that come from, let's say, patiently enduring persecution in the name of Jesus, as Jesus promised. Now, I, I mentioned, um, I'm going to get to this later, but I, I think it's worth mentioning now. I mentioned earlier that this was the first book written in what we have in the modern New Testament. Now, that may be true. We don't know it 100%. Um, but I found, a, I found a very fascinating article this week about, uh, written by one of my former uh, BYU religion professors, about how we can find evidence that Paul had access, and his, not only Paul, but his congregations, they had access to an early version of perhaps uh, the Synoptic Gospels, or perhaps just Matthew. And I'll present some of those ideas a little bit later. So when I say things like Jesus taught that Christian leadership is, whoso would be greatest among you, let him be your servant. Or when I say that if you are persecuted in my name, blessed are ye. Um, These are things that Paul refers to, but doesn't explicitly say. And in one point, he even says, as we have in the word of the Lord, um, and that's really the clincher in all of this, and that's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Paul says that, he's referring to some word that they're all looking to together. They're all sharing in the knowledge of, and he doesn't feel like he needs to say more about it. So it's possible that they all had some version of scripture that we no longer have, or that we have today as the book of Matthew, or it's also possible that there was a proto-Matthew, meaning that Matthew wrote uh, his a version of his gospel, and then there was an edition of it that came out later that became the one that was well-known and adopted into our modern scriptures. Uh, I'm going to talk about all of those ideas later, but the point is, um, I'm operating on the assumption that my former professor was correct, and I'll explain why it's, it's so convincing a little bit later, and that the Thessalonians and Paul, they all had in their possession or in their memory, however they preserved it, they all had a version of at least one of the Synoptic Gospels, if not all three. So as chapter 2 of First Thessalonians goes into chapter 3, Paul expresses how he was worried about them. He'd heard that they'd been persecuted, and he knew that he couldn't go because he, he basically, he was too sought after by the authorities in Thessalonica. And so he sent Timotheus to strengthen them in their afflictions. And then when Timotheus returned, Paul was so happy, he rejoiced to find out they were, they'd been faithful and true to the covenants they made, to the truth that they had learned. And In chapter 3, verse 4, Paul actually refers to one of the teachings that he gave them. He says, Verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. In other words, I told you this would happen, and now it has happened. And so we can all see that tribulation comes. Um, One of the quick lessons that I will draw from that is uh, a lot of times we think, okay, I have either accepted Christ 
made a covenant with him, received some sort of priesthood ordinance, or rededicated myself to him. You know, perhaps I had been away from the church or church activity for a time, or perhaps I've just been lackadaisical in my faith, and I've recently rededicated myself to him. And the illusion, the misconception is that this should somehow make my life easier. And often we do feel immediately uh, this the, the feeling that Christ has blessed our lives and that uh, we are being buoyed up and strengthened and things have gotten better for us in so many ways. But uh, to feel like that is a guarantee because we've accepted Christ is to misunderstand how the gospel works. And that's what Paul is saying. I told you when I, con- when I converted you to the gospel or when I was uh, the, one of the instruments in your conversion to the gospel, I told you that there would be tribulations coming. So um, it's, it's actually not true and often not helpful for us to assume that things will get easier when we accept or rededicate our lives to Christ. Uh, it's more helpful for us to recognize that Christ is a source of strength rather than a source of ease. A similar lesson was learned by the Nephites trying to make their way back from, if you remember, the people of Zenith. And after three generations, they were returning and they broke into two groups. And one group was enslaved and they were trying to make their way back to the land of Zarahemla and were enslaved by Lamanites. And uh, this was the faithful division of these the two groups. And they prayed to have their burdens taken away and their burdens weren't taken away, but they were given strength that their burdens were light. So I think that's really uh, the lesson that we could take from this is Paul was teaching them, look, you can, you can lean on Christ for strength, but you can't uh, you can't look at the life of Christ and think that because you believe in him, things are going to be easy for you. What you can do is realize that he'll be there for you, that he's walked all the paths that you're going to walk and then some, and that he'll walk with you. So then at the end of chapter three, we have the first of our apostolic blessings. And this is just a beautiful blessing. It's a beautiful prayer where Paul prays for the Thessalonians to receive three things, love, holiness, and hope. And then he spends the rest of this first letter talking about how they can receive those things. So first he talks to them how grateful he is that they have, you know, the first part of the letter, how grateful he is that they've received Christ, they've turned their lives around, that that in spite of the fact that they're being afflicted, that they're being faithful. And then he, he gives them this wonderful priesthood apostolic blessing. And then, as we've learned to do with our prayers, he doesn't depend on the prayer to do all of the work, but then he teaches them how to bring this prayer to pass. And so he immediately starts talking about those very things, holiness and hope and love, the three things that they need in order to be happy and to receive the blessings of God. So in chapter four, it's his challenge to holiness. And he talks about, as I mentioned in the in- introduction, He talks about uh, some of the aspects of holiness, namely, verses 3 to 5 are mostly about sexual purity. And the, as in other places in Greece, the surrounding culture was not one that valued sexual purity. In fact, uh, it was a form of worship to be sexually impure if you were a worshiper of Aphrodite. And obviously the gospel of Christ was totally incompatible with that. And so Paul has to constantly remind the communities that he converts that this is, look, this we have a different standard than the world around you. Same thing with honesty. So verses 6 through 8 talks about honesty. Verses 9 through 11. Now Paul is talking about brotherly love and the ways in which that manifests itself and what it looks like, what it could look like for the all, all of you who are now in 
uh, a community together. You're brothers with each other. You're brothers and sisters. You've you've formed a bond that is different from the bond that you had before you were the same believers, and you've all been persecuted together. And so support each other. Show each other brotherly love. Uh, you, you've become a family. You know, we actually preserve some some form of that today. I've, I hear many times my uh, bishop refers to our ward as a ward family. And I think at their best, when wards are really functioning properly and people, their heart is in the right place, those the best wards do feel like a family. And when you come in there, you can feel the love. And look, this is up to the choice of each individual congregation and the, and the people within it. And so Paul is saying, if you want to flourish, then you need each other. You need to build these bonds of love, these brotherly bonds of brotherly love. And then after he talks about brotherly love, uh, Paul spends a couple of verses talking about those who are, uh, let's see here, the, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, um, we beseech you, as he, he says in an earlier verse, that you study to be quiet and to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may have lack of nothing. So he's he's admonishing them that they should work for their own sustenance. I can only assume, this is my own interpretation that I'm putting on top of this, that because, now Paul, you remember, Paul has taken up a collection from some communities to take to others, specifically uh, back to Judea in one instance, right? So he's collected money from one Christ community and brought it to another. And so we know from the book of Acts, we know from that several places they had all things in common, there were no rich and poor among them. This was a, a radical change in the way things were done. And that also brings up, as I'll, as I'll mention later, it brings up one of the questions of authorship, because Paul has talked about uh, slaves, be subject to your masters, right? And then in other places, he, he takes up a, a collection, and he, he's obviously it's supportive of the fact that Christ communities, they are willing to sacrifice for each other and they're willing to take their material goods. The whole point of Jesus's kingdom doctrine was that it turns things upside down. And so that that actually is one of the complications because the specifically the epistles to the Ephesians and the Colossians uh, mention these, these aspects specifically, and it's sort of, uh, they're called household rules, right? That Paul Paul says, women love your husbands, men love your wives, slaves serve your masters, masters be kind to your slaves. And there are certain people who say, this just doesn't sound like Paul. Uh, So we might as well spend a little time on that question right now. How do you and I make the decision, not being scholars? I mean, if I had spent my whole life studying uh, Greek so that I knew, okay, the Greek in this epistle sounds a little bit different, and I feel comfortable to say that that's not the same person who wrote this, uh, as some people say about, for example, the epistle to the Hebrews, um, then I would feel a little more comfortable saying, look, I'm just going to ignore what's in there, or I don't know where it came from. Um, but I, d- I don't have that level of scholarship. I have a modest level of you know reading other people's scholarship, and that's about as far as I can go. I don't read in the original Greek, and I am interested in all of these topics, but when there are people who are far smarter than me who all disagree for what seem to me to be very good reasons, I at some point I have to say, all right, I, I don't get to know. 
Um, there is an ongoing controversy about this, and I just have to make up my mind to how I'm going to act in the face of uncertainty. And that's pretty much where we're at with the New Testament, with most of it, in fact. So there are people who argue, and I'm going to give you a few examples. There are people who argue, as I mentioned earlier, that the book of Matthew was not written by Matthew, that there possibly was a proto-Matthew, as it's called, and that an earlier version of the Gospel of Matthew that may or may not have been written by the Apostle Matthew. Uh, there are people who argue that the, uh, the epistles of Peter were not written by the Peter that we know as Peter in the, uh, you know, the first apostle and perhaps not by somebody named Peter at all, that the John writing the three epistles was not the same John that wrote the gospel, and the John that wrote the book of Revelation was not the the evangelist, and the, the evangelist John was not the apostle John or the beloved disciple of John. There are people who argue all of these things. There are people that argue that James that wrote the epistle of James was not James the brother of Jesus, but some other James. And there are people who argue that all of these things are authentic, and they argue it with great fervor and with very convincing arguments. Incidentally, this uh, process is not new with the New Testament. This becomes even more complicated for Latter-day Saints because we believe that our leaders are inspired of God, right? And you you don't have to go very long before you'll hear in general, general conference somebody talking about uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, being written by Solomon. But Almost no scholars believe that the book of Ecclesiastes was actually written by Solomon. Most scholars would agree that Ecclesiastes was a fictional work written at least a century later, if not more, and it's an example of the genre known as fictional royal autobiography, where somebody pretends to be a king from the past and writes a story as if they were that king to illustrate a point. And the book of Ecclesiastes is actually a very holy book um, if you if you believe that it's written by Solomon, then it then it appears very pessimistic. But if you understand it for what it is, then it becomes a book of real wisdom, talking about what things are meaningless or vanity, as it's called, and what things are actually meaningful in our lives, and where we can look to find true meaning. And uh, so the point is, it's actually profitable to understand a little bit about the arguments in any of these directions. Uh, it's, it does help to learn a little bit about these questions. Um, and it may take a little bit of the sting off to, to, believe, to understand that when Paul says, when Paul lays down the rules for a household and says, women, you have to obey the rules of your husbands the way, God, the way your husband has to obey the rules of God, that there are people who believe that Paul didn't write any such thing right? Isn't that interesting? And I didn't mention that when we studied it, because I believe that in the face of uncertainty, we need to be able to to reconcile doctrine in our own minds, whether it, however that question ends up coming out, right? So if it, if it turns out that it was written by Paul, then I have to be okay with that. And it turns out that it wasn't, then it's obviously easy for me to be okay with that. And so I operate on the assumption, this is how I handle the questions of authorship, to answer the question that we got at the beginning. Uh, I operate on the assumption that the scriptures are as they are represented. And in the case of Ecclesiastes, as I mentioned, to me it seems pretty conclusive that uh, it wasn't written by Solomon, even though it claims in the book of Ecclesiastes to be written by Solomon, uh, because I've read enough about it and because I understand what it means to be a royal fictional autobiography. Of course they're going to be claim, of course it's going to claim to be written by Solomon, because that's how that genre works. 
And so I understand enough about it to make my own decision, and it actually makes the, the book more meaningful for me. Um, I have a similar feeling about the book of Jonah. I'm not sure that the book of Jonah is 100% historical, that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish. It may be that this story was meant as an allegory, right? That somebody took a prophet who's actually mentioned in the book of Kings, but we don't know much else about him until we read the book of Jonah. And then we have this fantastical story about how he's swallowed by a fish, vomited up on dry land, and then he goes to Nineveh. We have no other account of Nineveh ever converting to the Lord. And uh, and then he has all the success, and then he has a hard time forgiving them. It, if you if you treat the book of Jonah, and I'm not saying I, I 100% believe that Jonah is fiction, but if you treat it as fiction, then it has a wonderful and profound lesson if it's a fable, right? And so I'm actually okay with it if it is fiction. We spent a fair amount of time when we did Jonah talking about that, that idea. And so I would say this. What I try to do is I try to reconcile the scriptures to my own personal beliefs on the assumption that they come from who they purport to come from. And that means in all of the Gospels, I believe that they were written by the people that it claims they were written by. Um, I'm supported in this by uh, the, the writings of a man that I admire greatly. Uh, he died last year, but when I was at BYU, he was my religion professor, and I only, in preparing this lesson, only now do I understand how greatly respected he was. Uh, I had a choice of religion professors at BYU, and it just so happened that I preferred the kind of professor who uh, talked about things with a deep, deep knowledge. I could just tell that when he was um, teaching the gospel that he really, really understood it down to its bones. And then I found out later he was one of the foremost LDS Greek scholars, and he, he he often read all of the Gospels. He'd read all the Gospels and all of the epistles many times in their original Greek. Uh, and that man, his name is Richard Lloyd Anderson. And I say that because um, I'm going to recommend a couple of books to you. One is uh, Guide, A Guide to the Life of Christ by Richard Lloyd Anderson. And the other is A Guide to... Acts and the Apostles' Letters by Richard Lloyd Anderson. And I just found out about that second book, but um, I consider it one of the privileges of my life, and that and I don't say that lightly, that I was lucky enough to happen upon his class and, and take uh, the first half of New Testament from Dr. Anderson, Brother Anderson. And I later on, a year later or so, I actually went to Jerusalem and I had to take New Testament again, and I am so glad that I didn't realize I was going to go to Jerusalem, because if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have taken New Testament, and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn from Dr. Anderson. But at the end of every lesson, he would stop, and he would say, now it's time to look at pictures of Jerusalem. And he would just show us pictures of his his uh, journeys to Jerusalem and talk about the places where the things we were learning about happened. And not only Jerusalem, but Greece and Turkey and uh, all of the, the different places that were included in the, um, in the New Testament. And then he would always say, uh, when we came in or when we left, he would say things like, you know, be, be good to each other or how have you been, you know. Have, he would express such genuine concern and care and love, much as Paul does in his letters. He, he always says, I thank God for you, and I, and I pray for you. And he, when, we, when we came in, it was obvious that with Dr. Anderson, um, not only had the, the intellectual 
questions of the New Testament, not only had those had a profound effect on him, but the teachings had sunk in deep to his heart. And that's what I hope for when I study the New Testament. I always hope that the deeper I can get into thinking about these things and what, what, what was Paul thinking when he wrote his epistles and what were the Thessalonians actually experiencing when they read his epistles. I'm hoping that the teachings can sink into my heart as I do that. It's not that I uh, have an aversion to staying on the surface and saying, oh, let's talk more about hope. Let's spend the, uh, the whole time that we have, let's just talk about the topics that Paul raises rather than the language behind it. I feel like the more I can deepen myself into understanding his mindset, the more I can, the more what he cares about can rub off on me, and I can understand why he loved Christ so much. That's really the point of all of this. So that was another aside. Hopefully that answered the question that we had at the beginning. We're back at chapter 4 of Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians. So Paul has just admonished people to work with their own hands, uh, and I, I mentioned that because we're going to see it again in, th- in 2 Thessalonians. And now he's talking about, in verse 13, uh, he goes into what the Thessalonians are worried about with those people who have passed away, believing in Christ, and they've obviously heard about the, the second coming. So one of the, one of the verses that I mentioned earlier, and this can be found in an essay, this comparison can be found in an essay called Paul's Witness to the Historical Integrity of the Gospels. I mentioned earlier that we have internal evidence that Paul was referring to some scripture, some account of the life of Christ, and I called it Proto-Matthew. It may, it may well have been that Paul had access to all three of the, an early draft of all three of the synoptic gospels. This is a very controversial teaching because most scholars believe that the gospels were written 20, if not 30 years later than the epistle to the Thessalonians. But Dr. Anderson uh, has written this essay. It's quite long. I'm going to just refer to a couple of paragraphs that that deal specifically with Thessalonians. But uh, the title again is Paul's Witness to the Historical Integrity of the Gospels by Richard Lloyd Anderson. That's to be found on the BYU website. And specifically, he says, now we're talking about um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. You can see where he says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, Now, that means the scriptures, right? Uh, That we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So on the surface, Paul's message is, don't worry about the people who have died believing in Jesus. The fact that we're still alive and they're dead, that actually doesn't present any sort of obstacle to God. When Jesus returns, we'll all rise up to meet him. Um, And one of the points that uh, Brother Anderson makes in his essay is, not only the content, but right down to the sequence of events that Paul describes both here and again in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, when he talks about the second coming, um, it's not only the events, but the sequence of events is right in line with Matthew chapter 24 and a similar discourse in Luke. And so it's fascinating. It, 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 It means that not only did Paul learn about the things that Jesus taught about his second coming, but that he probably had them written down because not only did he get the events right, but he got their sequence right, and he reproduced them in this letter. 
So he probably, if he didn't have them written down, he had committed them to memory. And he had given them, at some point, he had shared them either by either orally or by writing them down or given a copy to the Thessalonians, and they had learned from them. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that wonderful that they had those scriptures so early? And I, the, all of this was prompted by me asking myself the question, all right, I, I heard that the Thessalonians was the, was the first epistle that Paul wrote, and I, and I thought, did Paul have the Gospels when he wrote his epistles? And I started researching this, and it turns out uh, there are a ton of opinions about it, and it's just a fascinating question. It's a really fun question to research, and I think one place you could start, in fact, you could start and finish, is by reading the, the essay that I've mentioned by Dr. Anderson. Now, to get back to chapter 4, uh, Paul started out by talking about holiness, then he talked about love, and now he finishes by talking about hope, and his hope is centered in the second coming of Christ. So his apostolic blessing was for holiness, love, and hope, and now he's told the Thessalonians exactly how they can accomplish each of those goals. Isn't that fascinating? So then in chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5 is just Paul continuing talking about the second coming and basically saying, we don't. it's not given to us to know the times and seasons. In other words, um, Jesus ha- said that it's it comes as a thief in the night, and Paul says that in verse 2. Now, later on, this would prove to be a problem because Paul says the coming of Jesus comes as a thief in the night, and that led to a lot of confusion among the Thessalonians because they were afraid that they had missed it. And somebody, someone somewhere, we don't know exactly who, took advantage of that uncertainty and forged a letter from Paul. And Paul refers to this letter in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. So he has to address this confusion that reigns now because somebody wrote a letter to them and said, Jesus already came. We all missed it. And Paul wrote a letter said, don't be fooled. Even if you get a letter that comes from us that the day of Christ is at hand, here are the things you need to look for. Here are the signs that will precede his coming. And so there in that chapter and here in this chapter, again, the teachings are preserved that Jesus made during his lifetime about his second coming, and the sequence is preserved. So then what is the important point? The important point is not that we need to know when it's going to happen. The important point is that we uh, can watch and prepare And therefore, there are those who will be complacent and therefore worldly. And those are the people who are not watching. I'll I'll give you an interesting parallel. This is, uh, we've, we've drawn a couple other parallels between Jesus and the Thessalonians. Here's another parallel. Paul says, when he's describing the second coming, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Now, uh, this is language that would be used to describe a victorious Caesar returning from battle to Rome to a crowd of loving admirers, right? So let me give you a few examples. Um, With a shout with the voice of an archangel or a herald, with the trump of God. So trumpets shouting and heralds, and then uh, a loving delegation rushes out from the city to meet their victorious leader returning from battle, right? So uh, Paul is using imagery that these Greeks would would associate with uh, Caesar returning from battle. And they all are familiar with this 
uh, event because they've they've witnessed battles in their own homeland, their own ground. They've seen this happen, if not Caesar himself, then certainly his generals coming into their very city and having exactly this sort of victory procession. And Paul is describing the Lord having an even greater one. So he makes the comparison, and this is sort of an implicit comparison. He never, he never says right out that he's comparing Christ to Caesar, but he's basically saying there is a king, and Jesus is king, not Caesar, right? The very thing that got him kicked out of Thessalonica in the first place. So at the end of chapter 4, Paul makes a comparison between Jesus and Caesar, and then at the beginning of chapter 5, he contrasts them. He, he makes a, a, contra- a contrast between the believers in Caesar and the peace that Caesar can bring, and the believers in Jesus and the peace that Jesus can bring. And so uh, it talks about uh, verse 3. This is a very famous quote. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Interestingly enough, that word sudden, it only occurs twice in the New Testament. And one in one case, it occurs in Luke when Christ is talking about the day of the Lord coming upon them unawares, and it's rendered unawares in the King James Version, but in other translations, it's rendered suddenly. Uh, that word is aiphnidios, and in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 is the other place that it occurs. So that's one more, and this is pointed out by Dr. Anderson, so that's one more uh, parallel between that, that Paul is bringing in between his writings and the writings of the Gospels, right? And so it's, it's not perhaps not obvious. It's not like you could prove it to somebody, but um, it convinced Dr. Anderson uh, that, number one, that Paul was the author not only of the epistles that are ascribed to him by consensus, but also a lot of those that are contested, including Hebrews. And number two, that Paul had some some version of the Gospels in front of him, including Luke and including Matthew. Isn't that a fascinating conclusion? And that contrast continues, verse 5 of chapter 5. Ye are the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So he's talking about if you believed that Caesar was going to bring you peace, this is what you would do. But instead, you believe that Christ is going to bring you peace and victory. And this is what we do. We watch instead of being asleep. And morally asleep is his point. Paul finishes this epistle with a lot of general exhortations to righteousness. And then finally, another apostolic blessing. He ends it in verse 23, 24, and 28. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is actually sealing them up into their eternal salvation. And uh, perhaps not... Uh, It's still dependent on their faithfulness, but he's praying, he's giving them all the power he can through his apostolic authority. And then finally, in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That that pattern is continued in 2 Thessalonians. This is a, a short epistle with only three chapters, and each chapter ends with a small apostolic blessing. Now, as I mentioned, a couple of things went wrong. First of all, uh, parts of Paul's first uh, letter were misinterpreted. 
And so a lot of the Thessalonians thought we might have missed the second coming. Secondly, their persecutions got worse, and Paul hears about this. And so he writes to them, and they remain faithful, right? In spite of the fact that things got worse, they remain faithful. And so Paul writes to them to strengthen them and to clarify what's going on. So chapter one is all about the second coming, and he's giving them hope. And he's saying, continue to be faithful in your persecution. Your persecutions will be rewarded with rest, as he says in verse seven of chapter one. Uh, and you will, you will be in constant admiration of God, and you will be contributing to his glory, he says in verse 10. Those who trouble you, on the other hand, so he, he makes a contrast between those who are persecuting them and the Thessalonians themselves. Those who trouble you, they'll be rewarded with tribulations in verse 6 and vengeance in verse 8. They will be eventually cast away from God. So they've resisted God their whole lives. They've not wanted anything to do with God. And so when the time for judgment comes, then they will be rewarded with what they have chosen. That's in verse 9. Then he finishes with his blessing. God will count you worthy. This is in verse 11 and 12, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God will count you worthy. Keep his covenants. He will keep his covenants to you. And he will reward your works of faith. Jesus will be glorified with you and you and him. I'm not quoting, I'm just paraphrasing. So that's his apostolic blessing. Chapter two, we'll skip over for now. We'll cover that last. So chapter three, uh, this is Paul now talking about, again, about the people who need to work with their own hands. So um, I mentioned that there had been a lot of generosity in the church. There was this movement that they would, uh, they would share things with each other. And I, and I suspect that as a result, there were people who were taking advantage of the largesse of others around them to be idle and, and never work. And Paul is saying, uh, and here's another example of how Paul probably had some aspects of Jesus's teachings, because he makes reference to the fact that though it was our right to not work, we worked when we were among you. And he's referring to the fact that Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his hire. When you go in, he sent his disciples out. He sent his apostles out and he said, don't take any food with you. You will be provided for. And the laborer is worthy of his hire. So when you're on my errand and you're my apostles, then you are, you are entitled to be fed by the people that you're teaching. You don't have to work for your sustenance, in other words. Jesus explicitly said that. And Paul was making reference to Jesus' teaching when he said, we had the right not to work. Nevertheless, because we wanted to be an example to you, and Paul was a tent maker, that was his profession. And uh, so we worked with our hands. We worked night and day. In other words, you know, we spent a full day preaching, and then we we spent all night making tents, or I don't know what Silas's profession was, but we can presume he had some other manual labor profession that he could carry around with him. And Paul was responsible for his own sustenance. I made a, um, an issue about this in an earlier lesson, comparing it to King Benjamin, because King Benjamin had a similar claim. It was a great source of pride for these two men that they could say, even though I didn't have to, I worked for my own sustenance to provide an example to you. And therefore, you cannot take advantage of each other. Now, basically, Paul's point is this, and we all need to be sensitive in both directions, right? It is, if you choose not to work, you don't get to eat. And so there are people who would say, well, I can't work. You know, I, I'm actually dependent on the charity of others. And that's really hard. And it's, it, it costs me a lot of pride and it costs me um, some of my dignity, right? It feels bad. I don't like to take from others. And so we have to be careful of 
that we don't judge people who are actually depending upon our help or the help of others. And we also have to judge ourselves harshly a little bit because Paul actually commands them in the name of the Lord. He says, those who can work and who choose not to don't get to eat. And so we do have, on the one hand, we have a sacred obligation to provide for ourselves when we're able. And on the other hand, uh, I, I think this part goes without saying in this particular epistle, but I think Paul would agree that on the other hand, um, we have a, an obligation to provide for those who genuinely can't. And we have to be charitable about how we make that distinction, which usually means if we're not the person called upon to make that distinction, to just butt right out. So anyway, that's chapter three. And Paul ends chapter three with his prayer. This is his apostolic blessing in verse 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. And interesting that he talks about um, caring for ourselves, and then he blesses with peace at the end. So we can presume that those that the admonition and the blessing are somehow linked together. Uh, just as an, another side note, in verse 17 of Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. In other words, uh, I write this in my own handwriting. I always sign my letters, and this is the way I do all my epistle. It's so interesting that he writes that because it is patently false. Uh, so this is one interesting, just super, super interesting aspect of, and, and this is uh, of this epistle, and this is why First uh, Thessalonians isn't really contested. The authorship is not contested, but Second Thessalonians, a lot of people feel like. Uh, somebody was trying to make this epistle sound super authentic by saying, okay, I'm Paul, and I'm signing this Paul. In other words, he's protesting too much. In any case, something is up with verse 17, because um, Paul claims that he writes all of his letters this way, and it's just obvious that he doesn't. He doesn't sign all of his letters that way, because we have several examples where he doesn't. So maybe up until that point he had, and we don't have those letters. We don't. There are a number of explanations that have been offered that are perfectly consistent with Paul being the author of Second Thessalonians, and there are other explanations that contest his authorship. Just one more of those questions, and it's I, I put it on the shelf of things that are interesting to think about. Nevertheless, there's so much wonderful insight to be gained by reading it that I have chosen for the time being to accept that Paul is the author until more evidence should appear. All right, so chapter 1, we're going back to chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, just ended. Paul has given this blessing, and uh, the, remember, chapter 1 was all about hope through their persecution. Chapter 3 was all about how they needed to uh, work for their own sustenance. Chapter 2 is clarifying his comments on what uh, mainstream Christianity would call the rapture. And so Paul is dealing with this problem that people have misinterpreted what he wrote. Verse 2 is sort of, um, verse, verses 2 and 3 are the most often quoted by Latter-day Saints. So here we are, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. That ye be not soon, uh, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us. In other words, there's been a forgery somewhere as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. 
I want to uh, take just a few minutes and talk about our interpretation as Latter-day Saints of these verses and perhaps challenge the way that you have uh, gotten into the habit of thinking about them and then uh, talk about what we can gain from them. And so I'm going to point out a couple of scriptures that we as Latter-day Saints have a particular interpretation on. And, uh, and perhaps you'll be a little bit triggered as I, as I mention these. And that's kind of the point of why I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to come back to this and, and talk about our common interpretation of this scripture. And, why, why, uh, and I'm going to challenge it a little bit. So one example is from Ezekiel chapter 37. And uh, in verse 16, you'll remember that the, I'll just read it to you quickly. Son of man, take thee one stick, write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. Now, uh, many prophets, many apostles have said, this is a verse about the scriptures coming together, the stick of Judah, meaning the Bible, and the stick of Joseph, meaning the Book of Mormon, they'll become one in thy hand, meaning all the scriptures will be joined. I'm not saying that that interpretation is wrong, but what I'm about to say is, if you, the, the common understanding of these verses, as well as the plain context of Ezekiel chapter 37, is something else. So Ezekiel 37 begins with uh, the the account of a of dream that Ezekiel had about the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's clearly about the nation of Israel. It's been scattered across the world. It's going to be gathered like skeletons that are dry. And all of a sudden they're going to rise up and they're going to have meat put on the bones and skin and everything. And then they're going to be brought back to life with the breath of God and they're a mighty army. Then he goes immediately right in to the, uh, this, this metaphor about the stick. So during the time of Ezekiel, the he lived in a time when it had been more than a century that the tribe of Ephraim had been carried away captive, and they didn't know where they went. And so this is plainly a prophecy about the fact that one day we will become one nation again. Now, does it have an added meaning? Modern day revelation assures us that it does. However, there is no person outside of the church that who is skeptical, who would be convinced by our, our interpretation. I guess that's the point I'm making is you can't use our interpretation as proof to someone because all they have to do is look at this and see it plainly has another context. Now, the fact that we found an additional meaning in these verses means that we have, that this scripture is a richer one for us as Latter-day Saints, but that is not the surface meaning. This is a hidden meaning. It is a mystery in this verse, right? It's, it's, a, it's a hidden treasure of knowledge. And it's not the surface context. Nevertheless, we, because we've grown up with this interpretation, we think that is what Ezekiel 37, 16 means. And it actually isn't. What it means is that the, the two tribes are going to come back together. And one day in the day of the Lord, they will be joined together and become one people and they'll be brought back into their land. That is the surface meaning of Ezekiel 37, 16. Another quick example is in Isaiah chapter 5. And in verse 26, we read, He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latch of their shoes be broken. And uh, so, we have been taught to believe that this is a scripture about the, the ensign 
that will be raised to the nations of the Latter-day Gospel and that it is the restoration and that all the nations will flow into the gospel. Now, that I'm not disputing the truth of the, the conclusion, but if we go back one verse, we read verse 25, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25. The anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. He hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble. And their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So when God's hand is stretched out, it's a hand of punishment. The fact that he's already punished them doesn't mean that his anger is turned away. He's still punishing them. He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. Is not, let's gather Israel. This is actually an ensign of war. And God is on the side of the enemies of Israel in this particular chapter. This is Isaiah prophesying of the destruction of Israel because of their wickedness. And the ensign is calling them, saying, look, here is your vulnerable enemy. And so then all of the power of their traveling, the fact that they're not weary, their arrows are sharp, their bows are bent, their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint, their wheels are like a whirlwind, all of these all of these uh, descriptions, all of these metaphors, are descriptions of the enemies of Israel and how powerful they'll be as they rush to destroy Israel. That is the meaning, that is the surface meaning of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 26. And there really is no disputing that. If you read it carefully, if you read it in a number of different translations, you will see it's clear in the, in the context itself that that is what it means. That's what this enzyme means. Now, if there's another meaning buried in there. And, and there are other enzymes throughout the book of Isaiah that have different meanings. I recognize that. But the point is, this verse is sometimes used as a reinforcement of the belief that we have as Latter-day Saints that the enzyme has been raised and that enzyme is the restored church of Jesus Christ. That conclusion is true, and the interpretation of this verse doesn't fit. So, if that challenges you, if you're feeling a little triggered right now, uh, that's okay. Uh, this is this is all natural stuff, and I'm not the final authority on all these things. This is right. This is my interpretation, but it's an informed opinion. So, with that in mind, we're going to go to Second Thessalonians chapter two. Now, this verse is uh, let no man deceive you by any means. This is verse three: for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, this verse is almost always used to teach about the great apostasy, right? The time, the falling away of truth where all of God's apostles were killed. And then for over 1,700 years, the authority of the priesthood and the keys of the priesthood were not on the earth until Joseph Smith saw the first vision and then uh, had the priesthood restored to him. And over the course of years, eventually had the keys restored and finally in the Kirtland Temple, had the keys restored to the gathering of Israel, and, you know, all of the prophecies were fulfilled, right? And, uh, of course, all of that happened. Of course, there was a great apostasy. And, of course, Joseph Smith had to have all these things restored. And so, if there had been no great apostasy, there would have been no need for a restoration. That point has been made, and I believe it with all my heart. However, was that what Paul, here's the question, was that what Paul meant when he was talking about this falling away first? All right, let's, let's just consider a couple of things. First of all, in 1 Thessalonians, when he's talking about the second coming, here we are back in chapter 4. 
Paul says twice this phrase, first in verse 15 and then again in verse 17. He said, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to read verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, it doesn't matter if they're asleep. The fact that we're still alive when Christ comes, we're both going to be treated equally in the resurrection. Verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When Paul says we which are alive and remain, he's including himself in the group of people that will be alive when Jesus comes the second time. And so, it is. it seems to me to be clear that Paul's understanding of the timing around the second coming of Christ was not that he would have to wait 1,700 years. That seems to me to be obvious. And so for us to assume that verse 3 means that Paul is saying there is going to come a 1,700-year general apostasy, a great apostasy across the whole earth, is a stretch. So given, that, given our interpretation of that earlier verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the, the common LDS interpretation of this verse, that Paul knew there was going to be a great apostasy, a general apostasy, a falling away of the entire earth for 1,700 years, uh, or you know, even, even though most people wouldn't say, oh yeah, Paul knew exactly how long it was going to be, most people assume that Paul was prophesying about the apostasy right here in the way that we understand it. And I just don't think that is supported by the text, okay? Now, let's let's try to figure out what Paul did mean. First of all, we talked last week about Daniel chapter 7. Um, we're going to refer a little bit again today to the book of Daniel because this is apocalyptic literature in the tradition of Ezekiel and Daniel. And in particular, there are two prophecies in Daniel. One in chapter 2, you remember Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of a figure which had a head of gold, and the, the, the metals, this, this big statue, the metals got less and less precious as you descended, where the, until the bottom were iron, the, the feet were iron mixed with clay, right? This big statue. And the interpretation Daniel gave was that the, the head was Nebuchadnezzar, and that as you traveled down the body, the different metals, the different materials became different kingdoms until uh, the bottom was a, a kingdom much later on. And eventually, a stone cut out of the mountains without hands would roll down and crush this statue to dust and then fill the whole earth. And what Daniel said was that this was the kingdom of God. So, interesting things to note. Number one, four kingdoms were represented in that statue, and the fifth kingdom was the kingdom of God, which would destroy the four kingdoms. Now, Daniel chapter 7, four beasts come out of the, uh, come out of the sea and trample, and the fourth is the worst of all of them. And then the Son of Man comes out of the clouds, and the Ancient of Days, days sits on a throne of flame, and the flames come out and destroy the beasts. And the Son of Man is given dominion forever and ever. Again, four kingdoms and a fifth kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. So these two, are, these two visions are parallel visions. And uh, this is the pattern of an apocalyptic vision. An apocalypse just means a revelation. In fact, that's the word that's used in verse 3 
Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. The man of sin be revealed. Apocalypsos is the, is the Greek word for uh, the man of sin being revealed. It's just something that comes to light, is an apocalypse. And so let's talk about what this means. First of all, the falling away and the man of sin being revealed. Uh, if, we, if we read on, um, and, I've, and I've read also, I've read a ton of mainstream Christian interpretations of this chapter to try to understand what most people think that Paul is talking about. Because obviously, in mainstream Christianity, they don't see a falling away at the same time that we do. Um, LDS doctrine is that the, the falling away occurred as soon as the keys were taken from the earth, as soon as the last apostle died and they failed to uh, replace him. Whereas most Christians, Protestants believe the falling away occurred when uh, the apostles turned into popes and Catholics have a completely different interpretation. And so um, there, there is a number of different understandings of what this actually means. However, the, the common thread we can find in Daniel, which is that there will be a succession of kings and then there will be eventually God will take over from all of them. Paul would have believed this to his core. This, this would have been Paul's understanding of the second coming of Jesus. And one of the chapters that we haven't discussed a lot is Daniel chapter 10. And uh, what, what Daniel chapter 10 would have added to the mix, that, that is a very specific and lengthy and complicated prophecy. But what, uh, what is almost certain is that Paul would have interpreted Daniel chapter 10 as putting a name to each of the four kingdoms. And it's probable that what Paul believed was that the fourth kingdom was the empire of Rome. And in other words, Paul likely believed that within his lifetime or very soon thereafter, this, this would be brought to its conclusion. Now, there really isn't a big a doctrinal uh, conflict in what I'm saying with, the, with uh, every interpretation that you've ever heard for this verse. The conflict is more about timing. Now, uh, one thing I want to point out is that Joseph Smith had a similar question about the timing of the second coming. Joseph Smith actually asked God, he said, when will the second coming be? And he prayed and he prayed and eventually got the answer, and I can't remember the exact age, but this is in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you live to 85 years old, then you'll see the, you'll see the Son of Man come in his glory or something like that. And then the question became moot because obviously Joseph Smith did not live to that age. But had he lived to that age, uh, this, this day would have occurred sometime in the 1800s. So obviously the question was not meant as a, as a comment on the time in which Christ would return to the earth. And that is the point I'm trying to make about this verse here. So we usually take it as uh, Paul saying there's going to be a lengthy and general uh, falling away. And what Paul was likely teaching, this is the point I'm making, was something else. He probably thought that there would be, when he says the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, this is a character out of the visions of Daniel. And this is Paul saying, I believe that this is a specific person. Um, and so if we go on to read this, this entire chapter is talking about the second coming and, and the events that will precede it. The mystery of iniquity in uh, verse 7. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. 
He who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. In other words, certain things have to happen before the man of sin is going to be revealed. The mystery of iniquity is the falling away. And we don't know what it is. That's why it's a mystery. And so it's already going on. We don't know what it is yet. And the fact that it hasn't happened yet is letting or holding back the man of sin from being revealed. So if, once you understand the language behind this, you can recognize that um, what he's saying is there will at some point be an antichrist. And this is a figure from both the revelation of John, the apocalypse of John, and the visions of Daniel and the visions of Ezekiel. There will be an antichrist, someone who, who puts himself... Uh, perhaps even one figure. It could be that this is Satan personified. This is uh, a, uh, an effect, a group of people who show such powerful effects from the, um, from the influence of Satan that they have great power in the earth. Or it could be that it's one person. Uh, the, the interpretations differ. But Paul seems to be saying there will be one person who puts himself into God's place and he fools many people, people who are not watching, people who are not choosing righteousness over sin, over complacency, will be fooled by this person who puts himself in God's place. Now, Paul seems to have had the same confusion that, min- that anyone would have, that Joseph Smith had, which is he doesn't know exactly when the apostasy is going to happen. And that's really the point that I'm making is... Uh, We as Latter-day Saints can't use this verse as proof that even Paul prophesied that there would be an apostasy in the way that we today define it, because it seems to me pretty likely that Paul did not know that, that that was not Paul's understanding, that just like Joseph Smith, Paul had a misunderstanding about when the second coming would be, and he thought it was a lot closer than it was. And that's okay. All of that is just fine. There's no doctrinal problem with any of it. Except that um, in our culture, we often use this verse to prove our point about the apostasy. We often use this verse to say, the apostasy is as we have defined it in modern revelation. And here's an ancient scripture to prove it. When this scripture, according to this interpretation that I've just explained, really proves no such thing. Now, what does it show? What can we learn from this? What we can learn is that there will come a time when the pressures to, to put, turn your back on the gospel of Christ will be so strong that it will deceive people who otherwise could not have been deceived. That there will be, as is said in verse 9, his coming is after the work of Satan with power and signs and lying wonders. So there will be miracles performed. There will be strong delusion as, as is said in verse 11. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul is actually, this is a message of comfort, believe it or not. What Paul is saying is there's no chance that all of you missed the second coming of Christ. You're all afraid that because I said he's coming as a thief in the night, that he came and went, and you missed him. And here's the point. We didn't miss the coming of Christ. If, if Christ came, we would know it. When Christ comes, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, as we learned last week. And in spite of the immense pressure that will come upon all of us to turn our backs on belief in the truth, 
the day of Christ's coming will be a day of immense comfort for those who truly love him, for those who love righteousness. So let me read verse 12 again. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. These are people who have chosen that they prefer not to follow Christ. So here's the real point. What kind of people? This is, this is where we get to pick. What kind of people do we want to be? Do we want to be the people who have pleasure in unrighteousness or who have pleasure in the coming of Christ? We don't get to be both. We get to be one or the other. We get to prepare every day and watch every day and obviously make mistakes and repent when necessary. But strive, as, as is a new word that showed up a lot in our last general conference, we get to strive for reconciliation with God. And, when, and if we achieve that, then when Christ comes again, we will consider that to be a very blessed day. We will take pleasure in that day rather than in unrighteousness. Let's skip to the end of this chapter and we'll end our lesson. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 ends with an apostolic blessing. And in verse 15, Paul says, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And by word, he might mean the scriptures that I've referred to, right? In verse 16, here's his blessing. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. In other words, as I said before, it's so interesting that the blessing at the end of each chapter would be connected with the teaching in that chapter. So Paul spends the whole chapter talking about a falling away from truth, a revelation of a man of sin, a son of perdition. And then his apostolic blessing at the end is, may God comfort you. The God who has given us everlasting consolation, may he comfort you and take all of your good works and all of your words that are pleasurable and kind and and all of the ways in which you follow Christ, then may he strengthen you in them. This is the lesson of our, these, these are the blessings of our modern day apostles as well. May God comfort you. May you find comfort in the gospel and look forward with an eye of faith and hope and establish yourself in holiness as you look forward to the second coming of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.